Welcome to the watermarkoc.church podcast. Thank you for listening. Uh, I want to start this morning with a quote uh, of, the, of the very few things, just a couple things that I've read in the last six months to a year. There's this one quote uh, of a few that, that has been seared in my memory. It's just, I, I keep coming back to it all the time, and I think it might have some impact for this morning. Uh, you may see that it does as well, but um, it's going to be on the screen now. This is what it says. It says, the best way to shift wealth to heaven is to give to the poor. The best way to shift wealth to heaven, to transfer our wealth to heaven, is to give to the poor. This guy, Ron McKenzie. Now, let's do a quick uh, survey. This, in the spirit of surveys, let them continue. How many of you think that that quote's about money? Just go ahead, raise your hand. Judgment-free zone here this morning. How many think that that quote's about money? Raise your hand. It's okay. It's safe. Safe to belong. Okay, cool. How many of you think that that quote's about something else? Anything else? Okay, sweet. We have about 10% reporting this morning, and this was an unsuccessful survey at this juncture. That's okay. I put you in a tough spot. I get that. Uh, I'll ease the pressure for you right now. The truth is yes and no. Yes and no. That's how I would answer it at least. The answer is yes and no, and I want to tell you I love this quote for a couple reasons. One, I love it because I think it's about legacy. I think it's about legacy and investments. I think it's about how we make something transfer way beyond this world that is really just a blip on the radar in terms of eternity. And by the way, that's not just original to this guy, Ron, and it's not just my idea. When I read that, I think about, I think about Matthew 19. Now look at Matthew 19, and the quote will make even more sense, but look what, look what Jesus says. This is to the rich young ruler. We remember this, this story. If you wish to be perfect, go and sell all your possessions, Give the money to the poor, and you'll have treasure in heaven. Then come follow me. Get rid of all your stuff. Just, in, just fill in the blank, by the way. If it, for you, it's not money this morning because you came here this morning hungry. Like those, those muffins in the lobby are just hitting the spot for you right now. That's breakfast. That might as well be a three-course meal. Okay, maybe it's not money for you. And maybe it's not stuff or possessions. But maybe it's status. Maybe it's a, it's a, it's a, a constant driving hunger for success or acknowledgement or accumulation of some form. Just go ahead, fill that in the blank there. But Jesus' encouragement is about so much more than just this world. It's a legacy piece. The second reason I love this quote is because it's really a gut punch. It is a straight-up gut punch to the covetousness of really our hearts. Whatever the thing is, again, just fill in the blank. Whatever it is for you, success, status, stuff, I take that, that first quote, wealth, to shift wealth to heaven, I take that as a wide packaged and wide varying meaning. Whatever that is for you, it's a gut punch to that thing that we're hungering for, we're thirsting for. And, 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 and quite frankly, that example, when we think wealth, we think money. Oh, no, here comes another message on money. The, the, the fact of the matter is money is this amoral thing. It doesn't have an intrinsic value. I once heard a guy say money is like a brick. Money's like a brick. You can use that brick to chuck it through a storefront window, or you can use that brick to build churches around the world. It's all in the how, isn't it? It's all about how you package that thing. It's all about how you handle that thing. It's all about how that thing is attached to your heartstrings. And that's the other reason why I, I feel like, just so you know, maybe there's just some insight into the realm of a, of a, of a pastor or a teacher, but when we attack this, this subject, this whole series is about attacking the yoke of this world. The yoke of this world is the stuff around our neck that has us bogged down, stress, anxiety, unforgiveness, uh, in the event of today, success, status. We're attacking those head on, and we're replacing them with the yoke of the gospel, the yoke of the good news, the yoke of Jesus, 
And there's a pressure as a pastor or a speaker where we have to say, oh, but you know, that stuff is, it's not bad, but it's not bad to have stuff. I'm here to tell you, actually it is. Actually it is. If that stuff has a hold of your heart, and who of us in this room would have a hard time confessing, yeah, you know what? My heart has been backsliding in that area when it comes to, to the thirst for status or, or success or being driven for, for, for money or, or possessions or whatever it is, fill in the blank. That's why I love that quote. And I think that frames our time really well for this morning, you guys, because um, that's what I want to talk about today. I want to talk about the yoke of heaven I want to talk about transferring wealth to heaven by exchanging the worldly yoke of success and status and accumulation with the yoke of heaven, with the, ho- the yoke of heaven's riches, literally here and now. And like I said, maybe that's not money for you. Maybe that's not fame. Maybe it's not even success. We've we got at least a handful of stay-at-home moms in the room, whether you're a stay-at-home mom or you're a parent. What about that, that sense of just having your kids be productive, and and totally successful, and high-achieving kids. That's a struggle for some of us as parents in the room. What about as workers? The constant competition, outpacing, climbing the ladder. Where does that hunger and that drive come from? What's happening inside of our heart? What does that say about the yoke that we wear in our day-to-day lives? How about as friends and family members? Okay, maybe you're not a worker. Maybe you don't have kids. You got friends and you got family. And there's this constant trap of comparison Am I as successful as they are? Have I achieved what they have up to this point in their life? That is the yoke of this world, and that's what we're here to attack this morning. I'm coming at it head on because I think that me, myself, and you, maybe we need to chip away at that yoke and put the rightful yoke back in place, which is the yoke of God's grace, which is a little piece of heaven, a little slice of heaven. You know, Tim Keller has this book called Counterfeit Gods. And he talks about how funny an idea it is that we can work for God. He, he really like offering bribes for God, offering bribes to God, which is really like influencing God, which is another way of controlling God. Did you get that leap? I'll, I'll rewind it for a second. We, we offer bribes to God, which is a matter of influencing God, and then really influencing him is controlling him. And who are we to think that we can control the controller of the universe? But we come to him every time, don't we? With our, with our striving and our hunger and our drive for success and achievement and status. And that's, in essence, what we're offering, isn't it? That somehow we can earn it. Somehow we can earn it. And I love the example that he uses uh, in his book. He covers, he has this book in this chapter specifically on success. And he reminds us of the, the story of Naaman. So Naaman, the story of, of, of Naaman's life takes place in 2 Kings chapter 5. If you don't get your phone out, go ahead and get your phone out. You can use the Bible app to track along with some of the verses. I'll be jumping around a little bit. Um, if you have your print Bible, get it out at this time. Um, if you've got notes, you can take notes. Look at this thing. This is, you, can't, you probably can't see it from where you are. But this was found in the mix with the bulletins. Someone went crazy with some notes last weekend. This is from last weekend. There's, there's a little bit of pictures, which is okay, but... There's like bullet points and sub-bullet points. So you want to take notes? This is a great juncture to do that too, okay? Just take some notes. Maybe you'll remember something. Naaman. Naaman was this elite commander as a part of the Syrian Empire. So at this time in the the, uh, historical books of the Bible, the the Israelite kingdom is still intact. They have a king there. uh, And there's a prophet there named Elisha. He's the voice box of God. 
in, in a neighboring kingdom of Syria. There's a whole other you know, kingdom set up there, an empire set up. And Naaman was the second in command. He was second only to the king. He was a commander, highly successful, highly elite, highly decorated man within this kingdom. And yet he had leprosy, by the way, such an interesting story. By every other mark, perfectly successful, he had arrived in terms of this world. But he had leprosy, almost this constant, steady reminder that he couldn't do everything that he would want to do or aspire to do. Eventually, his body would decay and he would fall apart, literally bit by bit, inch by inch. Name and story, let's read it. I won't give any more qualifiers. Let's just read it. This is in 2 Kings 5. So Naaman told the king... This God uses this young servant girl. He has, a, he has a, a, a servant, one of Naaman's servants, who was literally stolen from Israel and taken to this foreign land as a servant. God is now using the voice of this girl to influence Naaman. This is the servant girl. Young girl from Israel had said, go and visit the prophet. The king of Iran told him, I will send a letter of introduction for you to take to the king of Israel. Awesome. He's got a letter from the senator, okay? He's got a point of reference. He's got the most high status note that you could have in order to get in the door when he arrives in Israel. Okay, awesome. The yoke of this world. For you to take to the king of Israel. So Naaman started out carrying as gifts 750 pounds of silver, 150 pounds of gold, and, and 10 sets of clothing. The letter to the king of Israel said, with this letter I present my servant Naaman. I want you to heal him of his leprosy. He's got money bags. He's got clothes. He's got all the gifts. Is the bribe language that I was talking about a second ago starting to play in your mind? Because it should be. This is a man who knows well the script of status, success, and achievement. He's going to go see how that works in God's economy. Verse 7. When the king of Israel read the letter, he tore his clothes in dismay and said, Am I God that I can give life and take it away? Why is this man asking me to heal someone with leprosy? I can see that he's just trying to pick a fight with me. The king is just freaking out. He's confused. He thinks this is an interpolitical battle here, all right? But for, for, forget him for a second, all right? Forget the <laughs> Israel king. He's got to learn from the prophet of the time anyway. And here he is, verse 8. But when Elisha, the man of God, heard that the king of Israel had torn his clothes in dismay, he sent this message to him. Why are you so upset? Send Naaman to me, and we will learn, he will learn, that there's a true prophet here in Israel. So Naaman went with his horses and chariots and waited at the door of Elisha's house. But Elisha sent a messenger out to him with this message. I just love this. With this message, go and wash yourself seven times in the Jordan River. Then your skin will be restored, and you'll be healed of your leprosy. This is fantastic. Just to give you one more piece of context. This is excellent. This is like the chief diplomat, the chief negotiator, the second in command of a country, or better yet, this is like a multinational CEO. And he's arrived on the spot to do some negotiating, to do some, some bargaining for an upcoming merger. Who do you think he expects to see when he walks in the door? The board or the secretary? The assistant or the board? Who do you think he expects to see? So Naaman, God bless him, just doesn't understand. He doesn't have a lens. He doesn't have a reference point for the way of God and the way of God's man through Elisha. He shows up and Elisha just sends his assistant out the door to go talk to him. And so his first reaction that's not listed here is, forget this. I'm out of here. There's a million rivers where I came from in Syria. I don't need to use this river. Forget this. Who's this guy who sends out his assistant? That's his first reaction. He tried to come at it from above. He tried to come at it from the success platform, the achievement, the, the, the letter of reference place. And God showed him the low and easy road of the easy yoke. 
That's what God was trying to show Naaman. Eventually, he, he, his servants, the servants of Naaman, get his ear once again, and they say, just trust me, if he, would have, if he would have instructed you to do something complicated or complex or super mystical, you would have done it. So how much easier that you just obey the simple command, go over to the pool, dip yourself in there. And what happens to Naaman? Well, he's healed. He experiences a little piece of heaven on earth through God's grace, only through God's grace, using the, the low and meek and humble servant girl and using this rogue prophet who's got, you know, up in the shanty towns in the periphery of Israel, Elisha. You start to see how God operates, how it's a little bit different in God's economy and the people that he uses. You can see how the easy yoke even now is working. And that's what I want to talk about this morning, you guys. I want to see if we can move from the yoke of success to the yoke of heaven. From the yoke of success to the yoke of heaven. And um, lo, we have another amazing case study for talking about someone who was so driven, so motivated, so hungry, so achievement obsessed and status obsessed. And that is the Apostle Paul. Look no further than the Apostle Paul. We have this great reference, even from him sharing his own story about how Paul struggled with this early on. We're talking about a very elite religious person in the man of Paul. For his time and place, though he was religiously elite, it might as well have been worldly elite. Because if you're a Pharisee, which is what he was, he was basically a part of the 1%. Okay? There are millions of Jews at the time in, in this location. And there was never more than a few thousand who could qualify to the rank of Pharisee. This is a highly elite group of SEAL Team 6 type religious leaders. That's what you have to picture when you think about Paul. And, and, and Paul's going to share his story in a couple different contexts in the New Testament. And it'll show you about his achievement. It will tell you a little something about his achievement. This first example is from Acts 22. You can jump over if you're in your Bibles. Jump over to Acts 22. Because I only have a small portion here. And you'll want to read the context before and after what's happening for Paul. But he's in a tough spot. He's had this tremendous missionary journey here in Acts 22. And now there's a, there's a mob that literally tries to rip him to shreds. They're trying to beat him to death, literally. He's almost dead when the Roman shoulder, soldiers intervene and, and pick him back up. And he wants to make a proclamation. So he's going to make this statement to the people there who are judging him and want to kill him. And this is what he starts off by saying. He said, I'm a Jew born in Tarsus, a city in Cilicia. And I was brought up and educated here in Jerusalem under Gamaliel. As his student, I was carefully trained in our Jewish laws and customs. I became very zealous to honor God in everything I did, just like all of you here today. He's telling his story. He's talking about his origins. He goes on. This is, I'm jumping over to Philippians 3 now. Philippians 3 has a similar, he's sharing his story. He's talking about the old yoke, the old life of success and achievement and status. This is what he says. He's talking to the believers now, the new believers in this crowd. He says, I, though I could, I could have confidence in my own effort if anyone could. Let's see, you guys have it there. Do I have it? Awesome. I could brag about these things. If other reasons for confidence in their own efforts, I have even more. Verse 5, I was circumcised when I was eight days old. I'm a pure-blooded citizen of Israel and a member of the tribe of Benjamin, a real Hebrew if ever there was one. So a question. I'm just going to skip right to application. A question for you and me this morning. Do you think that God really cares about where you're from? Where you're educated? What do you own? What's your net worth? Who your mentor, boss, predecessor, or parent was? Do you think he really cares how much you know or how much you can do? 
This is the yoke of the world, of success, of status, of achievement. And that's not the measure we use when we're talking about this yoke from Matthew 11, the easy yoke, the yoke of grace, the yoke of heaven. Paul knows this reality. I want to talk about this personality of Paul. We give him too much credit, quite frankly. We give him so much credit as the author of all these books. Maybe you and I wouldn't even be here if it weren't for Paul. But listen, listen to really the heart and character of who Paul was. He's got one of the best teachers in the world. He's talking about Gamaliel, okay? I'm an elitist. My teacher, only a few were lucky enough to sit under Gamaliel and get teaching and education from him. I, told, I said earlier, he's part of the 1%. And his obedience to the law was second to none. We're talking about 613 rabbinical laws. So you have the Old Testament law, you have the Mosaic law, and then what these Pharisees got busy doing in the time between the Old Testament and the New Testament, they were just lumping law and regulation and rule on top of that. And we have reason to believe that Paul really did not mess around. He was probably batting 100 for 100 when it came to these rules. Let me just put it into context for you so, so it'll make more sense. You can have a reference point. There's this, this awesome moment in Matthew 23 when Jesus is laying into the Pharisees. And you think Pharisees are everywhere, by the way. They're elite, okay? They're pretty rare. They're, and he's laying into them. He's saying, woe to you, woe to you, woe to you. He's just coming at them with an arsenal of correction for how they've missed the point. How over all those years and lumping all these rules on top of rules, how they missed the point. They missed the measure of heaven. They missed the measure of grace. And they made it about rules. He's there and he makes this joke. He's literally messing with them. And he says, Woe to you, you Pharisees, who are sure to tithe even off of your herb garden. Literally, the herbs in your backyard. You tithe 10% on those. But you've missed the weightier issues of faith, justice. You've missed the weightier issues because you're obsessing over the law. And that was Paul. I want you to now take another jump with me, if you could, and picture Paul in the audience as one of those Pharisees that Jesus is talking to. That's the yoke of this world, success and status. That was the man, Paul, before he met Jesus on the road to Damascus. You can read all of Paul's story. Go read it in Acts. He's telling it all the time. And yet he was so zealous, Paul, before his time with Jesus, before he met God on that road, he was so zealous even to the point of murdering Christians murderous threats, uttering murderous threats against the early believers and followers. The question for me and for you this morning is, what are the casualties that we're leaving behind us? As we are so laser-focused on that status, that success, that achievement in our work or at home or in our kids or with our friends and our relationships, where and who are the casualties that we're leaving behind in our zeal for those things of this world? So those are the terms, those are the conditions, those are some of the measurements that the world uses. That's the yoke of this world. And it begs the question, what's the measurement that you and I are to use? This whole series is called The Easy Yoke. Are we using the easy yoke or the yoke of the world? The yoke of the world or the yoke of heaven, the yoke of grace? Here's a question. I want you to literally write this down. If you're taking notes, write this down. This is a question that I want to haunt you like it's been haunting me in this whole week of preparation. Does your investment stop at the grave or go beyond it? Does your investment stop at the grave or go beyond it? You should be thinking back to that quote that we started our time with. The best way to transfer wealth to heaven is to give to the poor, the spiritually poor, the poor in spirit, the poor in tangible terms. Does your investment in this world stop at the grave or go beyond it? We have this target, you guys. We have an audience. Every single one of us has this audience. And it's composed of at least two types of people. 
your, your biological family, your biological kids, or, or your spiritual kids. I don't care how old you are in this room, 20, 40, 60, 80. I don't care how old you are in this room. Those are two audiences of people that every single one of us have in common, either our biological kids or our spiritual kids. When I say spiritual kids, I mean someone you mentor, someone you coach, someone you develop, someone you build into. Every single one of us has these key people and relationships in our lives. God is trying to grab our ears and our hearts and direct us to those people and say, where am I investing in that person such that I might meet them when I go to be with Jesus? And they're there with me. That's transferring wealth to heaven. That's the yoke of heaven. That is the yoke of heaven. That's a little bit of heaven brought to earth. If that sounds weird to you, you remember the Lord's Prayer, won't you? Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. That is not a wild proposition, you guys, for me to make this morning. It can't be. You, each and every one of us who said yes to Jesus, we are ambassadors on behalf of the king and kingdom. And we get to bring a piece of that heaven to earth by those relationships that are around us, the key relationships. Here's another practical takeaway, something you can practice right now. How about praying for the generations? How about offering a prayer, whether that's your biological kids, and we're talking about your children's children's children, or whether that's your spiritual kids and your spiritual children's children's children, but just even, what if you went three generations? Think about three generations. You won't even know that kid. You'll never have even met that kid. You'll be dead and gone, but that's the type of investment that will translate into heaven. And there's this awesome example, a great man, author, uh, um, author and, and, and speaker, Oz Guinness. And he's got this habit. He encourages others. He invites others to, to participate. Um, he prays for seven generations. He prays for seven generations deep. Maybe you and I could be challenged just a little bit in the prayers that we're offering for our biological kids, our spiritual kids. When we get on our knees and we say, Lord, just help them not be too much of a screw up. God, help them make it into the college. Help them get the, the perfect job. Lord, Lord, help them uh, accomplish and gain and be successful. Help them in those ways, Jesus. How many of us are on our knees asking that their investments might go way beyond this world? How many of our prayers have been transformed in that way? Well, there's, there's more of a measurement. If we need help, if you're still asking questions, that's great, Ben. A piece of heaven, awesome, sounds good. Paul goes on in that Philippians 3 passage, and he spells out this beautiful, crystal clear picture of the new yoke. He's going to give us a wonderful description of what it means to be in this yoke of heaven that is totally propped up, that is totally fed by God's gift of grace to us. It's an easy yoke. It's a yoke of grace. We're going to bring heaven to earth, a little piece of heaven to earth in our relationships and those we are making investments in. It's under God's grace that we're able to do that. And as he continues on in Philippians 3, look what he says. This is the new mind. This is his new heart. Before was his achieving heart, his achieving reality. This is what he continues on in verse 7. I once thought these things were valuable, but now I consider them worthless because of what Christ has done. Not what I have done. Not what I have mustered up. Not what I have accumulated, but what Christ has done. Verse 8. Yes, everything else is worthless when compared with the infinite value of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. For this sake, I have discarded everything else, counting it all as garbage, so that I could gain Christ and become one with him. I no longer count on my righteousness, my own righteousness, my own performance, my own success, through obeying the law, the rules. Rather, I become righteous through faith in Christ. 
For God's way of making us right with himself depends on faith. What's the formula? What's the complex equation? I don't see anything of that here. I see a gift of grace extended and a yes. A yes through faith. Verse 10. I want to know Christ and experience the mighty power that raised him from the dead. I want to suffer with him, sharing in his death so that one way or another I will experience the resurrection from the dead. How many of us have prayed that over our kids? How many of us have prayed that over those we're spiritually mentoring, those who we're coaching and developing? How many of them, how many have we offered them that same prayer, that same covering? Lord, that they would know the suffering, persecution, and death that you knew, Jesus. Let them know that so that the, the pieces of heaven that come down on earth may be great and deep and wide. Paul gives us the prayer language right there for the yoke of heaven. And there's two or three things, you guys, that I just cannot skip over when I look at what Paul's saying here. And the whole thing is motivated. He says it right there in the beginning, the very first line. I'm going to go back. He says uh, that I count all this worthless compared to the infinite value of knowing Christ Jesus. That original word for knowing in the Greek comes from the original Hebrew. It's referenced elsewhere. You know where it's referenced? When talking about Adam and Eve and their marital relationship. That's the type of intimacy If you have a question about, Ben, where should I get started? Ben, I feel like I've been backsliding in this. Where where should I go? How do I muster that up? How do I get to that place? It all starts with this intimate relationship. And Paul's saying that's where it's come from. It hasn't come from my own power, my own might, my own intuition even. It's come from this intimate relationship with Jesus. And he goes on. What's my next favorite thing? He says there, uh, where is it? Okay, it's the very last verse right there, eight, the second half of eight. For his sake, I've discarded everything else, counting it all as garbage. Counting it all as garbage. Okay, the original word for garbage back then is scubala. Say scubala. One more time, say scubala. Awesome. Scubala back then had two, um, it had two derivatives. It had the common language one, which is like on the street, yo, scubala to you then. Hey, scubala over there. It's just kind of common man's speak. And it basically meant that it was, um, it was fit for the dogs. That was just thrown to the dogs. And then it had a second derivative. And this one was more like a medical parlance for excrement. So congratulations. I just had all of you guys in the room say the word poop. Because that's what he's talking about. And if you're offended this morning, and if that rattles your cage a little bit, that the passage just said poop, I'm sorry, but this book, give it a test. It is not a sanctimonious thing. It is not this holier-than-thou pious thing. That's, that's Paul's words. You can go to Mark 7.20. Jesus says a similar thing. You're focused on all of this washing of your bodies. I don't care about that. It's what goes into your body, that goes, the stuff that goes into your body. I don't care about that. It just goes into the gutter. There's references for this cover to cover in the Bible. Scooball, I count it as garbage. Trying to drum this up on my own spiritual righteousness. Guys, how many in here, how many in here, because for Paul it was a religious elitism that he was battling. A lot of us in the room are career Christians. How many in here are still trying to perform for God? You guys, how many of us are still trying to perform for God? Take Paul's encouragement Take the measurement that Paul used. He said it was garbage. It was garbage. Finally, and this is the kicker. This drives everything. This is what makes the yoke of heaven even possible. It's grace. It's a perfect, unmerited gift of grace. Paul is saying that. He's saying grace was extended to me, and I said, yes, I have this new faith, and that motivates and drives everything. You know, there's this really cool story. Um, every now and then I'm blessed enough at nighttime routine to, to get to 
read what my kids are reading, okay? My wife has them on this great homeschool curriculum. Uh, we have five kids under the age of seven at home, and so I get to read to them. And, um, okay, let that sink in for a second. Good. Landed it. Well done. And one of the books that we're reading is by a gal. Uh, maybe you've heard of her. Um, her name is Laura Ingalls Wilder. You guys remember Laura Ingalls Wilder? Yeah? Well, who's she from? That's right, Little House. And she wrote this book called Farmer Boy. Farmer Boy is a historically inspired fiction of her husband's life, what it was really like on the pioneer roads. I just stinking, I stinking love it that my wife is inundating my kids with pioneer realities. Okay? You want to make sure the next generation is raised with some grit? Make sure they get some exposure to what life was like on the, the stinking pioneer trail, okay? Because it's heavy and it's real and it's crazy. I want my kids to be crazy like that. Anyways, there's this boy, Almanzo. That's the inspiration for her husband's character, Almanzo. He's this boy and he's learning, he's training these two calves. He's breaking these two calves in. I kid you not, three days ago, this is not a plan, three days ago I opened the chapter and what is the graphic above their chapter but a dual yoke? Picture of a yoke. I'm like, okay, cool, God, let's see where this goes. Um, pre- knowing that I'm preaching this weekend, right? And we're going to talk about yoke. So I, raised in Southern California, ain't barely ever seen a farm animal in my life. Almanzo has this opportunity to train these calves. In this next iteration of his training, he gets to fashion a whip. So he goes with his dad, and he gets a special tree material that becomes, you know, the, the, the fronds of the whip, and he, he fashions this handle. And uh, he gets it ready to go out that morning and do the work with the two calves, and do you think that, the, that the, the, the whip is used to strike the animals at any point in time? Okay, all right, we got a mixed review. Cool, I thought someone might know out there and they could help us get through this. No, no. The yoke at no juncture is used to actually strike the animal. The yoke is used for the sound near to their heads, mind you, the sound that allows them to be educated and trained on the different farming calls, the different commands, the ha Giddy up, all that stuff. Gee, it means go forward, stop, go right, go left. And Almanzo has the whip and he's snapping it by their heads, but he never ever strikes them. Why? Because once the farmhand, once the leader, once the father strikes the animal, he's lost all trust. He's lost all ability for the animals to get there on their own willingness, on their own response, because it's been inspired by trust. In grace, that they're learning these rhythms, these unforced rhythms of grace. So that picture, by the way, we always picture the yoke with these two animals. Well, what I want you to picture this morning, instead of two calves, it's you, and it's Jesus in the other yoke. And instead of a whip, it's Jesus' still, small voice whispering into your ear, suggesting right, left, forward, stop, speak, invite, talk to, build into, pray for. And that's a picture of the unforced rhythms of grace. So there's a couple of things about Paul. I'm just going to read this to you. I'm going to read one more thing because this is the last thing I want you to hear. The band's going to come up and I'm going to read to you literally from one of the kids' books. I got the chance to read that book and I got the chance to read another book. This book, it's called the, the, the Jesus Storybook Bible. Okay, it looks like this. I, I got some of the pictures on the screen. You probably won't be able to read all of it, but I'm going to read it aloud to you. If you need to be able to better focus, um, you can close your eyes in this time. But I just want you to listen to this picture of grace. I want you to have this. As we get ready for these last couple of worship songs and we get ready for communion, I want you to have this crystal clear picture of grace that makes all manners of the easy yoke possible. It makes all manners of bringing heaven to earth possible. It's because of what Jesus did. 
And I'm reading this chapter. This is what it says. This is the Servant King. This is a beautiful book that harmonizes two or three gospel stories. So it's not going to be a verbatim like your Bible reads. It's going to be a harmony of two or three passages. And it's, and it's read in terms of, you know, that a kid could access. But this is what it says. Maybe it'll be a fresh for you this morning. It was Passover. Passover, reference to the Exodus celebration when the Jews were saved from captivity and bondage in Egypt. And if they wished to be saved after the final plague, the final threat was that, that, that God would kill the firstborn son of everyone that did not have a stripe of a lamb's blood over their doorstep. Of course, that was a mirror image of what Jesus would then do. And this picture of Passover is what I want you to see this morning. It was Passover, the time when God's people remembered how God had rescued them from being slaves in Egypt. Every year they killed a lamb and ate it. The lamb died. Instead of us, they would say, but this Passover, God was getting ready for an even greater rescue. Jesus and his friends were having the Passover meal together in an upstairs room, but Jesus' friends were arguing, what about? They were arguing about stinky feet. Stinky feet? Yes, that's right, stinky feet. Now, the thing about feet back then was that people didn't wear shoes. They only wore sandals, which might not sound unusual, except that the streets in those days were dirty. And I don't mean just dusty dirty. I mean really stinky dirty. With all those cows and horses everywhere, you can imagine the stuff on the street that ended up on their feet. So anyway, someone had to wash away the dirt, but it was a dreadful job. Who on earth would ever dream of volunteering to do it? Only the lowliest servant. I'm not the servant, Peter said. Nor am I, said Matthew. Quietly, Jesus got up from the table, took off his robe, picked up a basin of water, knelt down and started to wash his friend's feet. The lowly servant, the Passover lamb. You can't, Peter said. He didn't understand about Jesus being the servant king. If you don't let me wash away the dirt, Peter, Jesus said, you can't be close to me. Jesus knew that what people needed most was to be clean on the inside. All the dirt in their feet was nothing compared to the sin inside their hearts. Then wash me, Lord, Peter said, tears filling his eyes. All of me, one by one, Jesus washed everyone's feet. I'm doing this because I love you, Jesus explained. Do this for each other. And Jesus picked up some bread and broke it. He gave it to his friends. He picked up a cup of wine and thanked God for it. He poured it out and shared it. My body is like this bread. It will break, Jesus told them. The cup is like my blood. It will pour out. But this is how God will rescue the whole world. My life will break and God's broken world will mend. My heart will tear apart and your hearts will heal. Just as the Passover lamb died, so now I will die instead of you. My blood will wash away all your sins and you'll be clean on the inside in your hearts. So whenever you eat and drink, remember, Jesus said, I've rescued you. Jesus knew it was nearly time for him to leave the world and go back to God. I won't be with you long, he said. You're going to be very sad, but God's helper will come and then you'll be filled with the forever happiness that won't ever leave. So don't be afraid. You're my friends and I love you. They sang their favorite song and walked up to their favorite place in Olive Garden. Let's pray. To find out more about us, go online to watermarkoc.church.